Amen. Amen. So good to gather together and to lift up the name of Jesus, the name that's above all names. Praise God. Well, church family, it is so good to gather together as the body of Christ and to sing to Christ and to make much of Christ. And what a joy it is to gather in an honor. It's also great to declare to the enemy that guns in churches do not terrify the Lord Jesus Christ. The church will march forward, and that's the hope of the gospel that we have. Now, before we move forward into our sermon, I want to take just a moment and celebrate something I think is very important in the life of our nation. There are many of you who have served or are serving within our armed forces. Yesterday was Veterans Day, but I want to take just a moment now to recognize and to thank those who have or are currently serving. And so if you have or are serving in our armed forces, would you mind standing so we can thank you for your ministry and service? Thank you. One year ago today, my wife and I, we were in a country that says it's illegal to do what we are about to do right now, and that's to open the Word of God and to preach it. And I am so thankful for those who have and are currently serving that allows us the freedom to assemble together, to worship God, to open the Scriptures, and draw near to Jesus. Thank you for serving us well. You know, we are about two weeks away from one of my all-time favorite holidays, and that is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a great holiday because we get to lock arms and spend time with family and friends. We get to stop and praise and thank God for his many blessings that he's given to us. We get to watch some football on the TV, but my personal favorite is to eat the great food. There is something about the Thanksgiving feast that is just a delight to enjoy. You see, isn't food interesting? Without food, we die. It's a necessary component to the life that we live. In order to live the life that God has called us to live, we need it for the sake of nourishment and food. Isn't that interesting that the two things that food does, although it does many things, is that it nourishes us on the inside, but also provides the fuel for us to move forward and to live out the life that God's called us to. Well, that is a picture of the gospel, that indeed when you put your faith in Jesus, he not only begins to work in you, he works through you. That is the point that Simon Peter is making in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. As a church family, we're walking through the book of 1 Peter together through the sermon series entitled Imperishable, in which we have looking, been looking at Simon Peter's letter to first century believers who have been scattered throughout the world, who are following Jesus, but at great cost of persecution. And if we go through this text, here we are in week 10, and we're still not done with the first chapter, okay? It has taken us a long time to get through this, but there is so much rich truth within the text of Scripture. If, if you've missed any of our studies, you can go to our website, gowestwood.org, and you can get caught up on previous sermons of what we've gone through so far. You see, every verse in chapter 1 is a deep well of truth. 
And when you take the time to drop the bucket down into the well and to bring it up and you taste on your lips what the word tastes like, it is sweet and it is refreshing. It's my heart as your pastor to feed you the meat of the word of God. And yet I'm having to come to the resolution that there is just no way I can serve up everything within the text. That is a challenge for me is as I'm working within the time constraints and within attention spans and even my own personal limitations, I'm discovering that we can't cover everything. I feel like we're marching forward, but there's truth that's, that's left behind us. This week, Christy and I, we were talking about 1 Peter chapter 1 and how it's probably one of the more doctrinally rich chapters of the New Testament. There is so much to grab hold of. Just sitting down and reading the 25 verses of this chapter, it's like drinking through a fire hydrant. First Peter 1 is a thanksgiving feast to be savored, and praise God, we have an eternity to eat its delicacies. You see, the word that you have in your lap right now, it is the eternal, imperishable, living and abiding word of God. And Simon Peter is writing to these believers who are experiencing persecution, but it's about to get a lot worse. And so he's reminding them of the gospel. He's reminding them of all that God has done for them in Jesus. He's reminding them of their position in Christ, their inheritance in Christ, and their security in Christ. And yet also he's reminding them of the work of the gospel in us and the work of the gospel through us. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Simon Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice here in the text three ways the gospel works in us and through us. The first, notice that the gospel washes us clean. Verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You see, outside of knowing Jesus, we have all been stained with sin. Our unrighteousness has left us dirty and unclean. Isaiah 64 even says that our good deeds, our best works, are like filthy rags before God. Our sins, Isaiah 1.18, are like scarlet. They are red like crimson. Your sin and my sin has made us spiritually and morally soiled before a holy God. When King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then orchestrated the murder of her husband, God, through, the Nathan, prophet, through Nathan the prophet, brought judgment upon him brought conviction of his sin and brought him to the point of repentance. And Psalm 51 is a recording of David's confession and repentance. And he says this in Psalm 51 verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7 he says, Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In verse 10, Create in me a clean heart. O oh God, and renew a steadfast, a right spirit within me. You can hear the desperation in his voice as he cries out to God for cleansing. David was convicted of his sin and he went to the only place where he could be forgiven. He went to the only place where he could be washed clean, God himself. 
as Christy and I were newlyweds, I was finishing up college and starting seminary and trying to provide for my new wife. And so I got a job as a bank teller. So as I'm going through seminary, I'm working several jobs, trying to take care of us and set ourselves up. And at this bank where I was working, in my top drawer was a die pack. Now, a die pack is a bundle of money that inside of it has a computer, tri- uh, a computer chip with a detonator with red dye. So that if a robber comes, he'll take the die pack with him. As soon as he steps out of the bank, it explodes red dye all over him. So that the moment when the police come and find him, he is quite literally caught red-handed. That's how it works, right? Well, you see, you and I, we are just like the bank robber. We have robbed God of his glory through our sin. We are tainted with our own transgressions, and we cannot wash the dye. We cannot wash the taint of sin off of our hands with religious works by trying to be a good person, even by praying a prayer. Those things do not wash us clean. The only way we can be made clean is through the blood of Jesus Christ. We need someone else to wash us. We are dependent upon someone who can come and make us clean. In Psalm 24, David says, Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his presence? He who has a clean, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. So who here can say, I have clean hands? Who here can say, I have a pure heart? Who here can say, I've not lifted up my soul to an idol? Nobody. Nobody can say that, save one. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he alone had clean hands and a pure heart and never lifted up his soul to an idol. Through his death on the cross, it is through him that we are cleansed from all of our unrighteousness. He, the sinless son of God, is the one who never lifted up his soul to an idol, but he died on the cross so that we can be made clean. In 1878, Robert Lowry said it like this, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that washes you. It's the gospel that works in you. Is that you are purified when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Titus says it like this in chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, watch this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When you obeyed the truth, when you believed upon Jesus, when you put your faith and trust on what he did for you at that, on the cross and through his victorious resurrection, you were at that moment, verse 22, purified. 
at the cross, Jesus paid your debt so that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all, from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Praise him. Give him the glory. He is worthy of your very best because he has purified you. He has washed you through the precious blood of his son. So the gospel works in us to wash us clean. And yet, I want you to see number two, that the gospel works through us. Notice the gospel establishes authentic love among believers. Verse 22, Peter writes, for a sincere brotherly love. You see, the gospel not only works in us to purify us, the gospel works through us. You see, your purification, verse 22, had a purpose. The gospel not only purifies you from your sin, it not only brings you into a right relationship with God, the gospel not only provides eternal life with Christ when you take your last breath, but the gospel also establishes a sincere brotherly love. That word sincere, it means authentic, without hypocrisy. This word love here, it means legit. It's like for, this is a for real kind of love. This word love that he uses here, the first love that he uses in verse 22, it's the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. We see a great picture of this in 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan was the son of King Saul, and he displayed brotherly love with his father's enemy. And in, in fact, the very successor to his own father's throne of Israel, King David. And the scripture says in 1 Samuel 18, 1, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. You see, this is a, a love that comes from your heart that's reserved for family. Well, now in Christ, your family is no longer defined by your family tree. Your family is defined by those who have believed in the gospel. Don't miss this. Believers love one another as family because we are family. Don't miss this. Those who have been born again are sons and daughters of the same God and Father. We are all co-heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There's coming a day in which we are going to enjoy the kingdom of Christ. We are all together for the gospel. We have all been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. This is your family. When you look around this room, when you walk around the campus, you see family. You have more in common with the people that are gathered here who are in Christ than those who share your own DNA but have not believed the gospel. This is your family. These are people that you lock arms with. These are the people whom you love. These are the people whom Jesus has purchased with his own blood. And he has brought us together as family with an authentic love. It's being implemented in the gospel by we love one another. You see, one of the reasons that God saved you was to put you in community with his people to display this brotherly love. It's an authentic, genuine love. So here's my question. Do you love people in this church like your own family? 
I'm saying like, this is your family. Like, do you love people in this church like your own family? Are these people that you would give your life for? People whom you love with just passion and a fearless love. I mean, really loving them. One of my favorite parts of being your pastor is I get a front row seat to seeing this type of brotherly love take place in the life of our church. I saw it take place this weekend at the father-child campout as I saw men step up and care for and be the father-type figure to young kids who don't have a father in the home. There was a man in our church this week who went and cut the grass of a mom who for a season is raising five kids under the age of 10 by herself. I've seen this week a small group rally around someone in their gathering because they didn't want them to grieve at a funeral by herself. I see it every week when people are gathered here throughout the week studying the word but serving one another selflessly because we are about investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus. You see, authentic love, it looks like bringing meals to people in good times and in bad times. It means holding one another accountable over coffee. It means teaching the scriptures to one another. It means volunteering to babysit for kids so that marriages can continue to thrive. It means that you're gathering regularly in this room with eager hearts to hear a word from God. It means going to the hospitals and to the nursing homes together to love and care for those whom the world has forgotten. It means serving in the student ministry and mentoring teenagers and reminding these young girls and reminding these young men that they are loved and they are known and they are cared for and they are prayed for. It means serving in our preschool and rocking a baby singing Jesus loves me while mom and dad can have a chance to worship and study the Bible. Did you know the fastest growing demographic in our church is our preschool ministry. And y'all, what a great problem to have. We need more workers. And so if right now you're not serving anywhere in our church, we could use you there. So Kenneth, how do I get plugged in? You can head out to the info desk when we're dismissed in a moment. You can go to the children's area, say, I'm available. We're going to do a background check, an application, and then we're going to mobilize and equip you so that you can love these children because Westwood's about investing in kids who will go and impact their world for Jesus. This is what we do. This is what authentic brotherly love looks like. This is how we serve one another. It means loving the person who's just sometimes difficult to love. It means extending grace to brothers and sisters in Christ and giving them the benefit of the doubt. When they may have said something or done something that just doesn't resonate with you, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt anyways because they're family and you love them. It means that you forgive the person who hurt you. It means that you rejoice with those who rejoice and you you mourn with those who mourn. This is what we do, Westwood. We are family. We're in this together. And if you're not currently engaged, I want to invite you to come on and be a part. One of my least favorite parts about being an athlete growing up was sitting on the bench. I wanted to be in the game. I wanted to be a game changer. I wanted to play offense. I wanted a chance to make something happen. Well, if right now you're not engaged, you're on the bench, get in the game, be a part, make something happen. Be a part of a brotherhood, be a part of a family of what Jesus is building together. Listen, you can't love people that you don't know. 
you got to get to know people. you got to love people because the gospel establishes an authentic love among believers. I want you to see third and finally that the gospel works through us because it compels an all-in love for the church. In verse 22, Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, the gospel compels you to action. Now, this word for love here is different than the first one. The first one's Philadelphia. This one right here, it's a agapeo. It's a love one another with a selfless, sacrificial love. It's a love of the will. It's motivated, verse 22, from a pure heart, which means you choose to love in such a way that you put others before yourself. And this type of love, verse 22, it's earnestly. This word right here is a great word. It communicates running with tight, bulging muscles because you're giving maximum effort. Like a horse that is sprinting across the finish line, whose muscles are bulging because they're giving their best. Well, that is a type of selfless, sacrificial love that we have is it's earnest. We're giving our best. We are all in with type of love that we have for God's people, which means that you love people within your faith family with passion. Your local church, man, you love with zeal and with fervor because these are my people. This is my church, taking ownership and saying, man, man, this is my family. And I'd be willing to lay my life down for these people. Why? Jesus loves the church, therefore he calls upon me to love the church in the same way he does. It's a call to say, this is where I belong and I'm going to invest my life. You see, according to Jesus, this is what marks those who are truly disciples, our love for one another. In John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Which means when we gather, we beam with joy. We beam with love. We speak kindly to one another. We speak with grace, imparting grace to the hearers. It means that we forgive one another. We're patient with one another. We show hospitality to one another. We outdo one another in showing honor. Around 200 A.D., North African church leader Tertullian documented a statement he overheard from an unbeliever who was remarking about something he saw in the church. Now this guy did not know Jesus, but Tertullian wrote down his words anyways, and he said this, see how those Christians love one another. You see, from the... For the early church, loving your neighbor, loving your brother in Christ was a tool for evangelism. A way that you and I get to reach people for Jesus is in the way that you and I love one another. So question, when people look at us, do they see people who love one another for the sake of Jesus? You see, the camaraderie of a ball team or of a local pub or of an inner city gang should pale in comparison to the solidarity amongst the people of God. That when people come in here, they see people who are genuine family. Like, these are my people. This is my church. And I love my people. And I'd be willing to lay my life 
down for them. This is what Simon Peter is drawing us to. So Kenneth, how do I do that? Practically, what does this look like? Let me give you two ways of how you can grow in community. The first is this, you pursue it. You pursue it. You have to pursue it. You have to put forth the effort and pursue community. One of the best ways you can do this is by connecting with a life group. These are small groups of people that you study the Bible together. You pray for one another. You encourage one another. You do ministry together. I mean, you, you laugh with each other, and sometimes you laugh at each other. Okay, these are people who you weep with. I love the fact that whenever someone's in the hospital, usually our staff is beaten to the hospital by someone in a small group. I love that. I love that I'm not the one who's the first one there or our staff's the first one there because the small group's already there. They've already mobilized child care. They've already got meals set up and they're already caring for that family. Well, that's what happens within these life groups is that you love and serve one another in this way. You see, community doesn't just happen. You have to build it intentionally. It takes effort. It takes humility. Can I just go ahead and say this? You have to be willing to get over your shyness. You have to be willing to get over awkward introductions. It's awkward at first. Several years ago, when Kristen and I first got married, we visited a church during Christmas break. And we were like, hey, let's go check out a Sunday school class at this church and see what it's like. And so we go and we sit in this Sunday school class and not a single person talked to us. Now I'm a pastor, okay? I, I'm, I'm comfortable. I, I, you don't have to entertain me. But I just thought, man, so this is what it feels like when someone comes and no one engages them. You feel left out. Let me challenge you, in your small group, invite, 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 invite. If you don't know somebody, say, hey, are you in a small group? Would you come join us? Come be a part. You see, that's who we are as the people of Christ. We include people. We say, get in here. Why? That's what God has done for us in the gospel. Where God says, come here, get in. You're, you're part of the family. You trust in my son Jesus, and come on, you're included. And it's open to everybody. Well, the same is true in how we function in our relationships with one another. We engage, we invite, we say, come on. Now, let me encourage you. When you have visitors who come to your small group, don't let them sit there by themselves alone. You have to engage them, invite them, say, hey, listen, you have kids, let's go on a play day. Man, what are you doing for breakfast on Tuesday? Can I buy you coffee? I just want to get to know you. Man, you invite, you include. One of the things we do is you invite people to lunch. What's great is on Sunday mornings we gather together and you see somebody you don't know, just say, hey, come on, what are you doing for lunch today? You come with me. You get to come hang out with me. Maybe you're in public and you see someone and you're like, okay, I think I'm supposed to know that person. Let me show you what you do, Okay. You walk up to them with a smile, you stick your hand out, and you say, hi, my name is, and you tell them, and say, hey, can we hang out? Do you have a small group? Man, can I buy you breakfast? How can I get to know you? You see, that's who we are as a faith family. This is how we practically function. This is how we work this out, is that you have to be willing to pursue it. But the second way you can grow in your community is to prioritize it. It takes time to build community, but you have to be willing to rearrange your schedule to prioritize what matters. You see, you have to say, listen, this is a priority for us, and so we're going to make, a, make it a, 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 an intentional effort to engage people. Okay, when I was a student pastor, periodically, parents would come to me and say, 
my kid, they don't have a lot of friends here. And so usually I would respond with, okay, well, um, how often do they come? Well, the answer is not very much, but, and I would just say, okay, I can't help you. You see, relationships take time. It takes investment. You have to prioritize it. You make it something that we're going to do. Okay, so Kenneth, what do I do if my kid doesn't want to go to church? Well, you handle it the same way when your kid says they don't want to go to school. You say, oh, that's too bad. God made me your parent, not your best friend. You get to go. Okay, this is what you do. I faced this a few weeks ago. One of my kids, I don't want to go to church. And I said, oh, you don't have a dog in the fight. <laughs> Guess what? You don't have to. You get to. Well, it's not any fun. And I said, buddy, that's on you. If you don't have friends, you have a whole slew of them waiting there to hang out with you. If you are looking for something to do, be a leader. Your job is to engage, set the pace. If it's not fun, you make it fun. You're the leader. Listen, I'm the dad. God put me in charge, and I want you to see what it looks like to follow Jesus. Well, what am I doing? I'm teaching my children what it looks like to love Jesus' people. It takes time. It takes priority. It takes investment. You have to be willing to rearrange your schedule to make it happen. Listen, your family calendar teaches your kids what is important. You are teaching your children even when you're not teaching them. They're looking at the family calendar. Don't miss this. Your calendar reveals your priorities. Therefore, put Jesus and his church at the top. See, parents, if you're not gathering regularly with God's people, you're showing your kids that Christ and his bride really aren't that important. You see, you are modeling the priority of your family, and you're saying, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to engage God's people. We're going to be a part of building community. And this is what it looks like. You invite people, hey, man, let's, let's get engaged. So for our family, we're going to rearrange our schedule to make gathering a priority. Now, we're not going to be legalistic about it, okay? If your kid's sick or if it's just providentially not going to work, man, I understand. God understands. But there's, it's going to be rare. I want my kids to say, man, it's a sacrifice. I'm, this is a priority for us. We're going to make it a point to gather with God's people. You see, don't miss this. The depth of your love for Jesus is revealed in the depth of your love for his people a direct relationship. There's a correlation that happens. So if you say you love Jesus, then you will love Jesus' people. That's, it's connected. Jesus does not see, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. That's foreign to the New Testament. You see, in the New Testament, we see brothers and sisters who are gathered together saying, this is my family, and I'm willing to take a bullet for these people, and we're going to serve one another. We're going to sell our houses and our land, and we're going to gather our money, and then those who have any need, we're going to make sure that their needs are met. We're going to pray together. We're going to study God's word together. We're going to eat together. We're going to worship together. And this is like an, a regular occurrence. May I challenge you as a family, make this a priority. 
say, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to invest in this community. Why? Because this is the brotherly love that Simon Peter is calling us to. You see, this gospel that has purified your soul is also the same gospel that God wants to send out to the nations and to your neighbors through you. And the way that you do it is by allowing the gospel to work in you and allowing the gospel to work through you. That is our way forward. Thank you.